Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Star Guitar. This is going to be the final episode of this first series and I think it's a suitably great interview to go out on. My guest is Wilco Johnson, formerly of Dr Feelgood. I recorded this episode way back in the summer of 2018 when I first attempted to get this podcast off the ground and for reasons that I won't bore you with, uh, it hit a sizable delay but I finally got my act together earlier this year and recorded the other episodes that you've heard so far. There are a couple of things that date it, but otherwise there's nothing in here that's changed, and Wilco's story remains the same, 12 months on. And what a story that is. He was born in Canvey Island in 1947, and had a pretty tough upbringing, but found joy in music and poetry. Initially, he wanted to be a poet, but realised soon enough that he probably wasn't good enough to make it as a professional, so he turned his attentions to music. After playing in a few bands when he was at school, like skiffle groups, he went to Newcastle University to study English. After he graduated, he travelled round India for a bit and then returned to Essex where he worked as an English teacher. Not long after, he formed Dr Feelgood, a hugely influential pub rock pioneers with his friends Lee Brillo, Sparko and The Big Figure. They blended their mutual love of rock and roll from the likes of Johnny Kidd and the Pirates and 60s R&B and went on to create what's known as pub rock, and in doing so, paved the way for punk. Their 1975 debut, Down by the Jetty, is regarded as a classic, and features the wonderful rock set. Seriously, if you haven't seen it already, check out the live version of that song from the Old Grey Whistle Test, which distills everything you need to know about that band into four glorious minutes. Paul Weller's is a big fan, once saying that Wilco is among the most influential British guitarists of all time. JJ Bernal of The Stranglers said... I often say to journalists there is a bridge between the old times and the punk times. That bridge is exclusively the feelgoods. Wilco left Dr Feelgood in 1977, later becoming a member of Ian Jury and the Blockheads, and worked as a solo musician, forming other bands too, uh, including Solid Senders. If none of this is familiar to you, you may also know him from Game of Thrones. Uh, he popped up in the first two series as the Lannisters' mute executioner, Sir Ellen Payne. He made it onto Arya's list, but we're not sure if she ever got round to killing him. Anyway, skip forward a few years to 2013. After cancelling a few shows due to not feeling very well, he was diagnosed with late-stage pancreatic cancer. It was terminal, and he was given 10 months to live. He was told that he could extend that to 12 months if he had chemotherapy, but decided to get the best quality of life that he could, refusing all treatment, and faced his death head-on. After that, there was an emotional farewell tour, including a date at the Royal Albert Hall, he went around the world visiting friends to say his goodbyes and recorded an album with the Who's Roger Daltrey. As you may have guessed, Wilco didn't die. A man uh, called Charlie Chan was taking photos of him at the Cornbury Festival in 2013. As well as being a Wilco superfan and a keen photographer, uh, Charlie also happened to be a world-leading cancer specialist and he had a theory that Wilco had been misdiagnosed. He was right, it turns out. And while Wilco did have a pancreatic tumour, it was a rarer far less fatal kind than previously thought. One 11-hour operation later, during which a tumour weighing three kilos was removed, along with Wilco's pancreas, spleen, part of his stomach, small and large intestines and some blood vessels around his liver, he was declared cancer-free. I first met Wilco not long after all of that, for an interview to promote his autobiography, and he was just about coming to terms with still being here. He said he'd made his peace with dying, and that, in some ways, he was grateful for the intensity that that terminal diagnosis had given him. This is something that we touch upon in the interview, along with how he got his beloved Fender Telecaster, which he still has, and let me have a go on. 
and his then new album Blow Your Mind, which was recorded at Rockfield Studios. So here we go with episode five. When I was at school, when, I don't know, I must have been about 15, I think. This is like the mid-60s, it's, uh, you know, pop music. I didn't know anything about music, actually, but one day at school, I, somebody had an electric guitar. And uh, I remember looking at this thing, and just been absolutely fascinated by it. Just look all the the strings and the knobs and things, you know. <laughs> I I just I've, I've I've got to have I've got to have one of these. And uh, so I don't know. Next birthday or summer Christmas, I don't know when it was. I got I got a, a very cheap electric guitar. And the thing about this electric guitar was. Uh, I'm actually uh, left-handed, and it was a, a left-handed guitar. And uh, I started uh, thinking back on it; it would have been almost impossible to play that thing. Anyway, I I started trying to learn, and, and uh, without much success, I really it wasn't very good. And after a while, I got the opportunity to buy a right-handed guitar. Uh, this thing was a thing called a Watkins Rapier which is a kind of English imitation Stratocaster. Cheap, but they were pretty good guitars. Anyway, get one of these. It was right-handed. And I thought, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn to play right-handed and uh, tell myself I've only just begun, so I won't feel such a duffer. And uh, that's what I did. And, well, during this time, learning to play and that I started finding out what kind of music I liked you know and uh, largely I suppose under the influence of Rolling Stones getting into uh, rhythm and blues kind of music and still kind of schoolboy stuff and then one day it was a Saturday and on Saturday Club Brian Matthew goes uh this is Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, and he put this record on, and I heard the guitar, and I just... I, I, I can remember myself kind of freezing in mid-stride, walking across the room, and, I, and, and when the guitar solo came, I was... Oh, I, 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 I want to... That's what I want to do. I want to play like that. And... Um, that evening, the, the, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates were appearing on... Thank Your Lucky Stars, which was a a um, pop show where people would mime to their records. And so there you saw Johnny Kidd and the Pirates miming to this record. And I see that he's only got three in the bands, a drummer, a bass player and one guitar. And normally bands had two, a rhythm guitar and a lead guitar. And I thought, what's happening there? And I, was, I knew they were miming. So I thought, how's that sound coming out? And I thought, that guy can't be doing it. Um... What must have happened is the lead guitarist has fallen sick and he can't make the gig. And, and this guy's just... Pre- and uh, Anyway, I, I soon found out, in fact, this guy who was uh, Mick Green did it all himself. And, and I was even... I thought, yes, yes, I'll, I've, got to, I've got to play like that. And uh, 
So I spent my time kind of finding all the records I could find that he was playing on, trying to trying to copy it, see how he did it. I couldn't do it. And uh, another thing about Mick Green was he played a Fender Telecaster, and uh, so immediately that's what that's what I wanted. Now there was a a Fender Telecaster in the display window of a music shop in Southend. That telecaster, and um, I, I used to go and look at this thing in the in the display window. Now th- these things cost a uh, hundred and seven pounds was the price of a telecaster. So in, yeah. in today's money, that's that's like it's nearly two thousand pounds. Is it? But it's still. I mean, it's. I mean, if you've got a nineteen sixty two telecaster, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the, it was the, it was. Yes, it was astronomical money. I mean, I mean, I think my dad used to earn twelve pounds a week or something that his job, and so £107 was, but I, so I just used to look at it and gaze it and gaze it in the window. Then there came this point where the shop had a sale, and they dropped the price to £100, and I thought, I've, I've got to have it, I've got to have it, and... The thing is, like my mum would not allow me to have anything on credit, right? And in those days, if you were under twenty-one, you couldn't get credit without your parents' signature. And anyway, she would never have done that. So, what I did was, I, I went uh, into the shop and said, "Listen, I want to buy this Telecaster." I said, "Can I buy it on instalments?" I said, "Look, can I come in each week and pay you?" however much money I've raised you keep the guitar right and and uh, do it like that right so they, so they said okay I think they wanted to unload it they didn't you know they weren't popular at that time or something anyway so I started doing that and what on a Saturday I would go into a shop I had this little this card this and uh, kind of make payment, and they would write write it down in the card, and then bring the guitar out from the back for me, and I'd sit in the shop all afternoon <laughs> playing it, and then and then when the shop closed, so of course I had to give the guitar back and, and go home, and I was uh, going on like this, but I mean I really wasn't. Uh, it was hard. There was still about know, sixty pound or something to pay on it and what I did was I got um, my girlfriend had a post office savings account with just about that amount in it and I I, I blagged her into paying off the paying off the telecaster and she like she had to keep it secret from her parents and uh but you got it yeah, and I, I, I don't know if I've ever paid about, but we we worked together for forty years after yeah. that. So, but uh, yeah, and it, um, so, so the, the, um, oh wow, you know, getting the tele, I got the telecaster, and I just uh, tried and tried and tried to sound like Mick Green, and and uh, could never really do it. But I ended up with my one. But how did you feel the first night you got it? That's not I got it. Yeah, when you when you got when you finally got it and you walked out the shop with it instead of handing it back. 
Oh, well, look, I'll say, I mean, just walking walking along the street with it. I'm sorry, you're walking out, I mean, you know, so walking, you're like, oh man, you felt like you've got a Cadillac or something, you know, and you, you, oh, it just, it, it felt great. I felt, yeah, I felt like a king. And uh, and then you'd do, of course, you know, you'd set it up in your bedroom, so it'd be the first thing you'd see when you wake up, and it was stuff like, you just, you'd just sit there gawping at it, and, you know. It's in such amazing condition. Um, how did I mean the one that you used in, you know, the, yeah. the one you got as a replacement is a bit more beat up because you've used it on the road and stuff. But how did you? You must have really looked after it to, for it to be in that kind of. I think it's been a bit refurbished during its time. Okay, but uh, I mean that you see that, that I was using that one when uh, Doctor Feelgood started. That was you know, that, and uh, and then once things started happening for us, I, I didn't want to take it on the road anymore because it you know. And uh, so, does, so it, does it not feature on any of the records? No, right. No, it's all always that one. So I, I got that one, made it red and black, and uh, I've I used that pretty much that guitar right up until the nineties, I think. And uh, since then, I've had—I mean, I've only had about seven guitars in my life. And I've still got most of them. Would you say that you're really into guitars? No. Right. You know, well, well, the thing is, you know, like the the whole the whole thing is like I wanted to be like Mick Green, and I saw Mick Green, you know, with this telecast, and that's what that's what I wanted, right? So, I mean, like um, they, I don't know, a little while ago, they they finally Fender finally did a what they call Wilco Johnson signature telecaster, you know. And uh, and they they come around here and say, well, what, you know, what, what do I want? You know, and, and I said, what what I want is a bog standard, nineteen sixty two Telecaster, but red and black, right? And that, but please don't have anything different. Don't, you know, and th- these people that go around uh, getting different pickups and all sorts of things. Yeah, you know, and, and some people they're crazy about guitars. You know, but I'm not. I'm not. I just like a Telecaster, but straight forward telecaster and that's it I'm not really interested in so it's like a t- tool of the trade for you though as well right? really yeah you know I don't I don't kind of yeah I don't get into them it's hard to imagine you playing anything else now well exactly I mean I, I can't but <laughs> you try other stuff though can you sort of you know go and get a Les Paul or something and, and give I it did, a go I did um, was it when we went to America with Feel Goods we were in uh San Francisco, and we, what were they called? The band that turned into Huey Lewis and the News. Okay. Anyway, the, these people were talking about um, a, a specialty guitar shop they knew, and I said to them, the th- Mick Green also, on a case for a while, he played a Les Paul Jr. With, as one pickup, and uh, it was Cherry Red, Les Paul Jr., and and I said to those guys, could you find such a guitar for me? And and they did. They they so they got me this red Les Paul Junior, and uh, it was great, pretty good. It had a it had a great sound, but just one sound. But it was kind of, you know it was good. But I just I just wanted because just because of Mick Green, you know, I was getting a bit rich then. So I thought, well, yeah, you know, I've just got a Telecaster, I'll have a, you know. And um, eventually, I, I I sold that guitar to Steve Hooker. He borrowed it off me for a to to for an album photo photo or something, and then he said he liked. Now he's a guitar person, 
Right? It, you know, he's always telling me about guitars and, yeah. that. and a lot of it I don't really understand. But you stick to what you know and what you like mm-hmm. and it's it's done you all right, hasn't it? Um, so you talk about um, wanting to play like Mick Green. Mm-hmm. Um, how how did you sort of develop that? Was that hours and hours and hours of, of studying what he was doing? Yeah, well, I mean, because it's difficult to study was running because I never actually, I could never actually see him mm. playing. You know, I could just hear him on the records and it's... Uh, how did I? I don't know. I mean, well, there's a kind of s- simple thing behind it, if you like, which is, I mean, the thing is, it's very percussive. It's done with kind of chopped off chords and that. And, you, you it's you know, and it's just learning how to do that. But you, and you, you got it down after a while. Well, well, I mean, I got my. I ended up with my way of doing it. You know, like Greeny didn't quite play like that. You know, uh, it was pretty inimitable, actually, what he did. But um, yeah, I mean, what I do is my attempt to play like him. <laughs> Could we get you to um, do a bit of that if you yeah. if you don't mind? I don't know. Simon has told me. I think this guitar's are working. God. Oh, Simon. Oh man, switch it on. So when you um when you made your signature Fender Telecaster, was that twenty fourteen? Was it that came out? Uh, I defer to your. Okay. So it was based on based on this telecaster yes, that yeah, I've yeah. luckily got on my knee, which is a sixty-two. And you, what colour was it? Originally? It was sunburst. Oh, it was sunburst. Yeah. Okay, with a white scratch plate. Yeah, yeah. And you sprayed it. and yeah, it's got a red scratch yeah. plate. Yeah, so they had a, had a red scratch plate made and and sprayed the body black. Did they? I think they put. Is it tortoiseshell guard they put on the um, on the one that came out, or is it flat red? I like probably that? still got the original scratch plate of that, and it was in fact white. With, right. a, with a black line round it you know what I mean yeah yeah and did they just come and measure this up uh, well they, they they just can't they, they can't, is, is that that's Bo Diddley oh wow Bo Diddley's signature on the back of the headstock yeah yeah that's fantastic yeah um, yeah they, well they just come round I think I might have taken a couple of pictures of it and uh, but I said I, I said to him, listen, what I want is a bog standard '62 Telecaster, and make it red and black. And so, and after a while, they sent me a, uh, a Mexican one, I think, that was like a '62 style one. They said, what about that? I said, it's all right, just make it red and black, and there it was. Do you, you like the idea of a load of uh, kids being out there playing your guitar? Um. Yeah, it's, it's quite good. It, but I mean, like, but I mean, there are greater things. And do you know that uh, we, <laughs> we recently toured Finland, and um, uh, we were in Helsinki. And after the gig, this young, very young guy came in, very shy, and he says, "Hello, I must tell you, my my name is Wilco, and I've been named after you." And and I said, "Oh man!" I said, "Actually, I knew that was already one Finn called Wilco." Because I remember some years ago, some people coming up to me at a festival there and saying, "Introduced me to this baby." They called it Wilco, and in fact, Wilco does sound rather Finnish, you see, um, with the K.O. and everything. And then anyway, so I'm, I'm going, "Yeah," and he's going, he said, um, 
he had been investigating this and he found there are at least, at his last count, 30 Wilcos in Finland, right? Now, I also have certain knowledge of a Wilco Gonzalez who must be a young man now in uh, the Basque country, right? And uh, w w this is, yeah, it must be over 20 years ago, right? We, we were touring in Spain and we we'd, uh, this, went to this gig and there, it, was a, it was a club. And the, the guy that ran the club, his, he lived there at the back, his place was. And he, uh, as we were coming in, he's, he's telling me his wife's just had a baby. And I'm going, oh, yeah, well done and all that. And then I think his, his English is a bit shaky, but... It, uh, is he telling me he's called it Wilco, or is he? And he said, and he see, he said, yeah. And and he goes, come, come. And I've got a video camera. I'm I'm filming this, right? And we go in, and this is his wife. But this this was a day old, right? And she, and she's got this baby in her arms, and she goes Wilco, and she oh man. <laughs> so you know that's better than people playing your guitar. Isn't it? Yeah, I suppose that's that's really nice. Yeah. And um, you, but you must get stopped. People must recognise you from the Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, that's well. that's brought a whole uh, other thing. Yeah, John Cooper Clark was telling me that uh, he was recently in uh, America and uh, talking talking to some uh, kids there, and, and you know about Game of Thrones. And then the, the topic, so he he said he knew me. And uh, I told him about it, and I said, what? He plays a guitar as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an actor who does a bit of guitar yeah, now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, they do. When, I got, when uh, my, the news about my cancer was uh, going around, I think it was the LA Times, rather the LA Times, New York Times, describing me as actor Wilco Johnson. So. <laughs> but of course... You know, Ellen Payne's not dead, so you could. Well, you but, but I don't think so. I think they, I think they're going to do this one's going to be the final series. Um, I, yes, I. Oh man, it was just so much fun. You know, like, yeah, I would would have liked to have done some more. Um, so this is a sixty-two as well, Strat. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, as soon as we uh, got signed, and I, there was a bit of money. I thought, I do love Stratocasters, they're so beautiful, so I thought I, w I would also like a Stratocaster, and of course a pre-CBS one, I see, mm. and I, I yeah, found it in the back of the melody maker, 180 quid. Yeah, well, um, like I said, Mick Green's style is... is is uh, based around rhythm, really, and uh, with, like I say, cutting the chords off. See, now I've got this way of playing, like people, you know, everyone knows this chord. I don't play it like that. I play it like that. You see, with my thumb over the top, okay. and this gives, this is the advantage you can you can do that with it. I've, like if you lift your fingers up, the strings are all damp. You just put them down, and you get a chord. So you can do that, right? So you can get a, you can get a rhythm going for a song. So you go. And you can and and, and if you you why this hand right? It's, you can do a simple rhythm like this. It's, it's just going up and down all the time, steady like that. 
happening. So you're just doing the fingering for the lead bits, and but this the sound. <laughs> There's lots of. Uh, I remember uh, going round Nick Green's place one time, and 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 uh, we, and, he, and he started playing this riff, right? This riff had really knocked me out. <laughs> right, it's this. It's going to do some riff, you know, and and um, I'll oh, teach me how to do it. Teach me how to do it. And I ran home. That's a, I wrote the song "Going Back Home" for for, for for that riff. This riff is great, right? It's just uh, you see, use your thumb, use your thumb. Don't really want to change. You're just completely bullshitting that bit. You just lift your fingers and you go right, but you go. make of your playing then if, being so inspired by Mick Green what, um, did, he, what did he make of it when, when Dr. Phil had, um, started to make her name and um, yeah we probably got a record deal and all the for the previous five years I think Mick Green had been in Las Vegas back in Engelbert Humperdinck right anyway I'd come, I heard that he'd come back to London and people have been telling him Oh, there's this band and now heavily influenced by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, they were. And then he told me he came down to the marquee to see us. And we would always start with this uh, I Can Tell, which was like Johnny Kidd's version. And, and uh, he said, he said we come out and start with anything, blimey, what's happening? And he said, and then the guitar solo come and I started going mental on the stage. Oh uh, yeah, I think it quite amused him. Where did the duck walk come from? You sort of like moving about on the stage. You're, you know, the the whole. I think the whole physical thing with Doctor Feelgood was it all radiated from Lee Brillo. He, he he was a he really was the front man. You know, people used to say it was a tour, but actually it was him. You know, and or well, what it was was he was the what he kind of he had this. Nervous energy, right? You'd express it like, and this, and I would kind of bounce off him, you know, like I, you know, to kind of take my cues from him, and that that that's that's the way it worked. Okay, but we never, um, and we never rehearsed the stage act. We never worked out what to do. It's just like we, you know, we, you know, you're playing local gigs and that, and you find out different ways. You can excite people, you know, like by, you know, <clears throat> you know, you, you, you know, it makes, when I was, uh, when, I, when I first got this telecast, we used to go, there was this great R&B club in the Westcliff called The Studio, and Mods used to come down from London cause, to this place, it, it, was, it had such a good uh, jukebox of rhythm and blues, every time I hear Green Onions, it takes me back there, you know, so, anyway, one of the bands that used to play there, I mean, look, I'm Georgie Fame and 
I believe John Lee Hooker played down. You know, like it was quite a place. But uh, one of the bands used to play. There's a band called the Cops and Robbers. And uh, as I say, I was a kind of beardless youth watching. The, we would get support spots, and uh, sometimes we support this band. And and, uh, and the, the, their leader was the, the guitarist and singer, right? A guy, a guy called Smudge. And uh, I mean, I'd sort of watch him. You know, a good band of that. And then he would do a guitar solo, and I, I'd think I can play better than him. But I, I noticed that whenever he took a guitar, so he looked really angry. And I thought, wow, man, it's like, you, you, you realise there was as much in his eyes as, as the guitar, really. And, and like I say, the whole, the whole point of, of what you're doing is just to excite people, you know. And, and as I say, I, I would kind of uh, bounce off of Lee, you know, he would be shaking his fist at the audience and I'm shooting my gun, you know, and, and if you if you're looking kind of uh, a look, look, looking like you're angry. Yeah. It's it's exciting, you know. And because the crowd react to that, it, it makes you do it more, you know. So you, you so all of those mannerisms we had and things we do were just things that that just develop when you know things that get the crowd going he looked like some kind of uh, wild west villain in, you know all in mm. black with the mm. with the guitar up like a gun mm. that masterson I think yeah <laughs> okay um, so um, skip through to the new album then that you've just that's about to come out um, did you is it pretty much straightforward what you knew what you are going to do before you go in it's just you know get these songs took two weeks to record no, well, well, I had a couple of songs that I'd written quite a while ago, and um, also a lot of uh, stuff that we got together with a band, just jamming and things like that, that could be the basis of songs. And when we were driving to Rockfield, I'm thinking. I mean, it is literally decades since I've gone into a studio with a big company, and that they are spending thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds on this. So you know, you know, you you can't mess about. And and I'm thinking, oh, blimey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. You know, we I know there's definitely two songs, and anyway, we went in and we just steamed into it, and we were like recording things, and I was writing things. Uh, yeah, I was just I was just ahead of it. I go, oh, I'll do the vocal on that one tomorrow, you know. And like, actually, it means I'm going to write it tonight, you know. Like, so you only went in with two songs. Huh? You only went to the studio with two songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. And uh, like I say, the others were in various states of repair, you know. And like, in fact, Dave Erringer, the producer, when he'd. Uh, on his kind of schedule, he got these titles written, these songs written down, and Dylan had told him about them, right? And and, uh, and he got most of them marked off as instrumentals. Because and, I, and I'm sort of looking, I go, no, no, that one's actually a song, you know, like, but no, I haven't written the words yet, you know. But it will afterwards, yeah. I promise, yeah. But another weird thing about going there was that is where the big bust up with Dr. Feelgood happened 
And I have not been there for 40 years since that argument happened. And now you go, Rockfield Studio is in a stable yard, you know, a farm. And there's a studio down one side, and there's like accommodation down the other side, on the courtyard. And we got there, and so I went and got the same room that I'd had 40 years ago with Dr. Philgood. Right, we are going here. And... Um, I would, while we were recording sometimes, I'd go out and I would go out in the night and walk, walk across the stable yard and look at this doorway. And I tell you what, man, I felt like a ghost. It was like, you could have 40 years, you think 40 years, something happens, really traumatic, that actually changes the course of your life, right? in a really intense <laughs> scene and then you don't see it for 40 years and you come back and you're thinking oh man you know look thinking all that all those people all that all that shouting and all that, you know, all that fury and that that was that was quite i don't know what i felt like it gave me the shivers you got over it though oh yeah yeah it was, it was just a, um, a means of uh, entertainment while while we were while we were doing the recording whose idea was it to go to rockfield Dave Erringer, he's it's his favourite studio. He knew, did he know the backstory though? Uh? Did he know that that was where you'd had the feel good argument? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Wow. Um, and is it any temptation to sort of shake things up? You know, like we, you, you talked before about you, you know you never use different guitars and stuff. Was it? Is it always, un- you know, sort of unquestionable that you would do anything different? It was impossible, wasn't it? I mean, I wasn't wondering about it. Right. No, I mean, the thing is, I've got, I got to say, this band I've got now is absolutely the greatest band I've ever had. I mean, it's just so good. Now now we've got Dylan on drums as well as me and Norton. And uh, it's the first, I don't know, the first time that I've had a band where it's the band doing it. It's not me with some people, you know, and uh, everyone's as important as everyone else. And so... And what I really wanted when I was going there, I, I thought, you know, well, it's been a long, long time since I've done a Grown Ups album, <laughs> you know. And uh, I, I want to I make something that's really good, I, 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 that's my thing, but is I didn't want people to just say, oh, yeah, Wilco, yeah, he's done his stuff, and, it, you know, it's nothing to write home, I don't know, whatever. I wanted it to be good. Yeah. And... I was trusting on the set we had the musicians I had and, and Dave Erringer producing and I knew that I knew it was going to be good uh, so it was down to me to write these bloody songs but you, and you uh, no writer's block or anything it just came out of you yeah well as I say there were, there were um, I think it was two actually written quite a while ago and as I said, on the way down there I, I was freaking a bit because like, you know I didn't have anything in my head you know and, and uh, I was just hoping it would <laughs> when, I, when I had the music and yeah well it did yeah I mean we were, we were just working so hard we got you know like it was well we had a fortnight but we took a Sunday off so it's like 13 days but getting up in the well, it's, you know, midday or whenever you get up, and but working until you're uh, night time, you when you are really exhausted, 
And then you've got to go back and write some more words. <laughs> you see, you probably didn't think you'd get to make this album, though. What you mean? Yeah, well, a, few, a few years ago, yeah. Well, obviously not. I, yeah. mean, I, mean, I didn't uh, expect to be sitting here talking to people. <laughs> um, do you, are you still in that phase? Um, I spoke to you when your book came out and you were talking about how you'd... Um, you were getting used to the idea of kind of, you know, the worst not having happened and you were, you know, you trying to get some of that intensity back. Um, have you, are you fully adjusted now to... Um, the change well well I mean the, that year was was one of the most intense years of my life it was fantastic I mean it was so it was like man you, know, you, can't, you can't imagine I mean I can't imagine when I try and think back on it now it seems like a dream you know I think however did I do that you know like you wake up every morning and first thing you think oh, I'm going to die you know freaky and uh, it, it kind of sets you apart, and you know. But it, sometimes the kind of uh, intuitions you get and uh, insights you get are so intense. You know, you just sit, sit, you know, and you, you're thinking. And and sometimes I'll be thinking, man, well, it's so intense. It's, it's almost worth it. Almost, almost. <laughs> yeah. But it was, you know, like yeah. So anyway, I've got, obviously. That put me in. A, there was a, a year or whatever in a completely different frame of mind, and uh, and then the experience of uh, the operation and the hospital and everything. I was in the hospital for a long time. I mean, a big operation really knocked it out of you, you know. And then then come back home and more and more weeks and weeks and weeks go by before I'm before I can even walk round the block. You know, you're very very weak and and. And uh, now I've come out on the other side of that, and you see, really, I should be you know, pretty jammy, isn't it? I mean, like, I was gonna, I'm still alive, I'm 70, I just played the Albert Hall, I've got a fantastic band, I've got, you know, but uh, however, I still contrive to feel miserable most of the time. And uh, I, I've now discovered that, that, uh, that, that only. Actually, I'm only, I think, really happy. I'm actually playing. That's it, because it's a different... It's just a different feeling from everyday life, of, of being on stage. You just... You kind of abandon your... You know, your, this bloke that lives here, the, you know, and does normal... That, 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 you leave that behind, and you walk on stage, and you are just simply in that very simple role people see. You're just there to play rock and roll, and you know point guns is it a feeling that you can get from doing anything else no no, no. do you play when you're not on stage no don't touch the bloody thing I said honestly I will, <laughs> I will now because we're doing quite well now doing big gigs and that and so we've got a proper road crew I've got Simon now. I've got a tree tunes a guitar and I walk on stage guitar put it on boom walk off stage he takes it off me and that's all I see of it has it always been like that? I mean, when you were a kid, I suppose you were playing all the time. But yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, when, when I look back to think of it, uh, you know, as a teenager learning to play, yes, all the time, man, all the time, you know. But I can't, I can't be. Why should, why should I? I, don't, I mean, 
I don't. I, yeah, I, it makes sense. You know, if it's your job, like it's. Um, <laughs> I, 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 maybe I'm a big streamer, but I really, it really, it's like a, I don't, I don't get off on sitting and playing. You know, you know, you you start a band and you have a, you have a couple of rehearsals. And I say, right, well, you got to do that. But I wasn't like, well, let's play some rock and roll. You know, and and then go and do, when you when you were doing gigs, I think when when Phil had started uh, happening and I started writing songs. Then I would tend to be more because you're doing that. I would tend to be more, but I, uh, no, I can't, I can't remember a time when I really, since uh, being a teenager, when I really thought, "Wow, whoa!" You know? <laughs> yeah. So if you were a teenager in Southend now, would it be the guitar that you went to? Would it, or, or would would you get? Well, it I mean, it's impossible, isn't it? Okay, uh, but I mean, for one thing. I, I mean, I only became a musician by absolute accident. It was never an ambition. I mean, when when I bumped into Lee Brillo and that time, and we start we decided to start a band. I had absolutely no thought that it would ever be a professional band. It was just going to be something for fun. And I hadn't played for five years. You know, when I went to university, I just stopped playing and uh, started again when I met Lee and, and, uh, and, and then and we, we got swept up into what happened that happened you know any other circumstances that something like that wouldn't necessarily have happened and I would have definitely been doing something else so when you went backpacking and when you were a teacher did you play the guitar at all? no never? no right <laughs> <laughs> you see people taking little guitars on holiday or yeah well it's just an encumbrance isn't it man if you've got to be sleeping on the street in Calcutta you don't you don't want a bloody guitar no I suppose and you say you went you went travelling with 65 pound stuffed in your wife fronts and that was everything that you went so I suppose you wouldn't have taken a guitar with you exactly no but I mean if you if you'd have gone up to that hippie and said you were going to spend your life as a musician. I've gone, no, that's impossible. You're happy with how it turned out, though? Well, I've got to be, you know, really. I must be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. And that's why it kind of, why I've stuck with it all this time. Uh, it's, just, it's a great way of making a living, you know. I've always been able to make a living out of it. I mean, if 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 I if, if my career had gone down the tubes after Doctor Feelgood, you know, I would I wouldn't have stayed in this for the joy of it. It's just a, it's a nice way of my life. I, mean, I love doing it. I love yeah. It's the it's it's the like I said. It's the only time n- nowadays I'm actually happy when I'm performing. Usually I'm miserable. Misery. <laughs> And there we have the final episode of Star Guitar. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to know more about Wilco and his remarkable life, pick up a copy of his autobiography, Don't You Leave Me Here, in which he writes about everything from growing up on Canvey, forming Dr Feelgood, to cancer, Game of Thrones, and everything in between. Oil City Confidential is also well worth seeking out, which is Julian Temple's 2009 film about Dr Feelgood. And there's a sort of follow-up to that too, called The Ecstasy of Wilco Johnson, which I think you can find on YouTube. Wilco has just announced a string of tour dates for 2020, kicking off in April. So go to wilcojohnson.com for details on that. Thanks to uh, Julian Stockton and Wilco's son Simon for helping set up the interview. And thanks also to 
uh, Jane Long and Rob Shirt for help recording this episode all those months ago. As for Star Guitar, thanks to everyone who's listened so far and to everyone who's been in touch with kind or supportive comments. A man called Damon Valentine was in touch recently to tell me that Star Guitar is his favourite new podcast, which was very nice. And my own sister sent me a message last week to say that she'd finally listened to an episode. And even though she doesn't really like guitars and she's bored of me talking after all these years, that she didn't think it was too bad. So that's nice. Thanks once again to Liam Frost for furnishing me with some theme music. And thanks to Ellen Wishart for designing the logo. I've got some more interviews in the bag already and I've got a few more lined up, so I'll be back with another run of episodes in the new year. Until then, follow Star Guitar on Instagram, and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll get any new episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks again. Bye-bye.